If you've been listening along to the podcast in real time, you're probably realizing that we've been focusing on obstetric fistula since the beginning of December, aka the last two weeks of the podcast. And today, we are back at it with just one more very special episode that dives even deeper. And you might be wondering, why am I spending so much time on this topic? Well, first, I realized that when interviewing people working within the space, that just one episode isn't enough. The questions I asked continued to shed more and more light, and highlighting just one organization doing good work just wasn't going to cut it. I wanted to tackle it from all sides, prevention, treatment, and empowerment. The first part, episode 38, answers the very simple question, what is obstetric fistula? Look, a year or two ago, I I had absolutely no idea what this devastating condition was or meant for the women living with it. If you don't know what obstetric fistula is, go back and listen to this episode first. That's episode 38, what is obstetric fistula? The second part, episode 39, discusses how Fistula Foundation is serving women through surgical treatment of fistula. We talk about what these surgeries look like, how the foundation is working with communities in need to build trust, how they direct women to the proper point of care, and how they've built a growing network of dedicated surgeons to serve these women. It's remarkable, to say the least. And in this episode, I'm featuring an organization called Hope for Our Sisters, an organization that not only provides treatment services, but puts a clear emphasis on prevention and empowerment. What if there was a world where no woman had to experience the harrowing consequences of obstetric fistula? What if there was a way to prevent this condition from ever happening? This is what our guests Brooks Sulahian and Kara Brooks' vision is for the future. And so before we dive in, here's a little about Brooke and Kara. Following a successful 13-year career in human resources and four years as a stay-at-home mom, Brooke's eyes were opened to the suffering and injustice that afflict her brothers and sisters around the world. This occurred in June of 2010 after reading The Hole in Our Gospel by Richard Stearns and Half the Sky by Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. The plight of women and girls living on the margins of life captured her heart. She was specifically struck by the stories of women and girls who lacked access to medical care and suffered from or were at risk for fistula. As a result, she co-founded a volunteer group in October of 2010, which led to the founding of Hope for Our Sisters, Incorporated, in January of 2012. She is driven by her belief in the inherent value of each person and her hope that women and girls around the world will one day be fully cherished and valued by their families and communities. Brooke believes our sisters have the ability to change the world. She currently lives in the Boston area with her husband and two children. Kara is a registered nurse who specializes in neonatal intensive care. She's worked in several low- and middle-income countries for up to six months at a time. She was first exposed to the tragedies of obstetric and traumatic fistulas 
when serving with Mercy Ships in Madagascar in 2015. Upon meeting Brooke at the Women's Gathering in 2016, Kara felt called to join Hope for Our Sisters team and work on behalf of her beautiful sisters suffering from this terrible condition abroad. She has high hopes that with enough global outcry and improvements in healthcare delivery, fistula can be eradicated in our lifetime. She is currently pursuing a certificate in faith and higher education through Calvin University, where she serves as an adjunct instructor in the graduate public health program. Just a forewarning, this episode might make you cry. Happy tears, that is. My name is Ethel Lahman, and this is The Global Health Pursuit. I just have to say that we persevered through all these technical difficulties. It was about 20 minutes yeah. of trying to figure out what platform will work. So we're on Riverside. So thank you to Kara and Brooke for being on this podcast and working through this technical difficulty <laughs> with yeah. me. Yes, no worries. No worries. No, no worries. I just want to say again, thank you for coming on to the podcast and thank you, Kara, for reaching out to, uh, yeah, to speak about this really, really important topic. I did want to mention, do you have any involvement with like all the stuff that's happening in Congo right now? Yeah. I mean, it's, well, it, it depends on which there are so many things happening right. in yeah. DR Congo at the moment, you know, but you know, when there are issues with uh, there, when there were issues with earthquakes, when there are issues with rebels, we stay in touch with our partners there. And there have been mm-hmm. times that we've actually been able through global giving, we were able to fund COVID relief. We were able to provide food right after the earthquake. We were able to provide different things like beyond our scope. Yeah. to help them continue to do things that are in our scope. I don't know, Kara, if you have anything you want to add. Yeah, I mean, it's just been dollars that we have. We still use to stay true to our mission. Um, yeah. But Global Giving has been awesome in allowing us to be a conduit to funnel relief to them for all the different like things that are happening politically. Because both of our partners, correct me if I'm wrong, both, both of them work in Goma, which has been yes. really affected by the earthquake and a lot of the political unrest. Yeah, I need to read up a lot about what's going on right now um, in Congo, because I do think that a lot of the media is around the Israel-Palestine conflict, which I'm really glad that there is media around that. I know. Well, there was that that recent earthquake in Nepal, in Western Mm -hmm. Nepal, actually, and I reached out to our partners on that one, too. They, They were not personally affected. But yeah, we try to stay in touch with what's happening on the ground to see if we can help in any way. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was a little tangent because I just needed to ask you guys that. Um, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> but back to our scheduled programming. Um, yes. You know, fistula is something that I had learned about just a couple of years ago. And it was really interesting to me to learn how women all around the world, you know, were affected by this and then are affected post actually getting a fistula for years and years and years after that and not mm-hmm. getting the care. And so I really wanted to go back and, you know, get your stories and how you both found each other and found mm-hmm. your passions within advocating for these women and girls who have and who who maybe need the education around fistula worldwide. So how did how did you find each other and how did you find the passion that you have for Fischla? 
I'll go first. Um, I'll try to try to keep it brief, but my journey started in 2009. I was reading a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. It's by Richard Stearns. He used to run World Vision USA. At the time, my kids were three and one. I had completed, I, I had finished 13 years in human resources and felt very done. Like it felt very complete. So mm. I could go do something else. And my thought was that when I did go back to work, it would probably be at a bookstore or like stationery store because I love to read and I love mm. to write. But I read this book and this book, I was 38 years old. This book really opened my eyes to all the needs in the world and all the lack in the world. I basically was in a bubble, Hethel, and I, I, it's almost embarrassing to say that, but it really was kind of the, oh my gosh, there's a lot going on that I didn't know about. And I knew I needed to do something. And yeah. I told my mother-in-law, I was like, okay, I read this book. I have to do something. And she's like, well, you really don't have to. And I was like, oh no, I do. Like I, I felt it. So 2010, I read another book called Half the Sky by Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. It's all about the oppression of women because they're women. I recommend both books highly. So at this point, the kids are four and two. I got both books through my church. And this book was my introduction to maternal mortality, which is death in childbirth. My side story right now as well at this time was that I think after reading the whole in our gospel and wondering what I was going to do, I kept wondering what I would have done if I'd been alive during the women's suffrage movement in America. I don't know why that one popped up, but it did. Hmm. And so my question was always, you know, would I have been at the front lines? Would I have been against it? Would I have been in it? And so when you read a book like Half the Sky, there are so many legitimate needs out there. It's like, where do I start? Yeah. And so, yeah. So from I my think perspective- that just paralyzes people too. Like there's so many needs and you're just like, I don't know what to yeah. do because there's- Totally. Pick. Yeah. Right. Right. Totally. So um, for me, my, my course of action was to pray. And I went to, I basically took it to God and said, you know, I've read this book. Everything is legit. Everything has needs. What do I do? And felt really led to go back to the section where I had written some notes because it was a library book. I couldn't fold the pages. I couldn't mark it up. And mm -hmm. so I reread the maternal mortality section, went for a run, it wasn't audible like you might have like in a, in a movie, but God really impressed upon me that fistula is my suffrage movement. This is what I've been waiting to do. And it was very clear that this was something I was supposed to give my life to, not just write a check, not just yeah. maybe watch a video, but really give myself to. And I want to make one quick side note for you. I'm not sure if you and Kara talked about this, but Hope for Our Sisters is a, a faith-founded 501c3. We're not a Christian organization with the IRS. But um, I'm doing this work because I feel called by God to do it. Other people on the team are doing this work because of their faith as well. But we also have people on the team who are doing this work simply because they know it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we will partner with any sister, no matter her beliefs or experiences. We'll partner with any sister who is either suffering from fistula or at risk for fistula. So I just like to kind of get that out there. Yeah, I love that. You know, yeah. um, I grew up Hindu. I would say I'm more like spiritual than like actually religious. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes when we find, when we see like nonprofits out there that are like very like Christian focused and stuff, it almost feels like, oh, well, I'm not part of that. So I'm really glad that you said that to kind of like open it up to like everyone who has yeah. several different types of beliefs. And it's not just one, you know, Correct. one religion. Correct. But thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. And the last thing I'll share, and it's, it's interesting. I don't know if Kara told you that our, so our first step 
was becoming Circle of Hope with Fistula Foundation. We actually volunteered with them for a little over a year. And I chose the Fistula Foundation because uh, of the options listed. That was the only organization where I could give myself to it. Mm -hmm. And so we, and we being Mimi Johnson, she's our co-founder, Mimi and I committed to fund a hundred surgeries through the Fistula Foundation. And it was during that process of sharing these stories with our friends and reaching out through our church that people started asking about prevention. And I hadn't even thought about it, honestly. Mm. We focused on treatment because that's what we knew, but people started asking. And so we did some research and we realized that it's 100% preventable. The obstetric fistula is. And people were asking so much. We're like, okay, we really felt like this was what we were supposed to do. And we couldn't find another US-based organization funding fistula prevention. So mm. we started our own. And it was, it's what I love about it is from the very outset, we decided we were going to be a root cause organization trying to get to the actual causes of fistula. Mm -hmm. And we are partnering with our sisters before they get injured. And that was really important for us too. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A, Click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. So it's 2012, right, Brooke? Founded, yes, founded in 2012. Yeah. Uh, founded in 2012 and it's 2023. And yeah. wow, that's yeah. like, that's amazing <laughs> growth. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, no, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to dive into prevention and everything. I first wanted to get Kara's story into Yes, her. definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I'm a nurse uh, by training. I have been a NICU nurse for about 12 years. And NICU and women's health are obviously, NICU is neonatal ICU for anyone not familiar, are obviously inextricably linked. And so I'd always known about women's health, but I've never actually worked in women's health. I had always been very interested in medical humanitarian missions, had gone out on a few short-term missions shortly after nursing school. And then in 2015, had an opportunity to go out with Mercy Ships. And I don't know if you've heard of them, Hethel, mm-hmm. but it's a floating hospital for anyone who doesn't know. On a ship, it sails around the coast of Africa, docks in different countries for anywhere from nine to 10 months at a time. And they provide a range of different free surgeries and services. Big focus on medical capacity building. So helping these countries establish their own strong medical infrastructure. And they have a number of other programs that support communities as well, like agricultural programs and things like that. So I had gone out and was assigned to be a pediatric ICU nurse obviously much more my wheelhouse coming from a NICU. And I just, the minute I got on board and started seeing the women in the women's health program who were all fistula patients, they just stole my heart. They would come on, you know, despondent, looking at their feet, not really Mm. making eye contact with people. And it was just heartbreaking to see these women. And over their time on the ship, 
through their surgeries, even the women whose surgeries weren't 100% successful, when they left that ship, they just had this sense of dignity, this sense of worth. They were smiling. They had found like a, almost like a renewed sense of purpose and hope. I think a lot of it was connecting with one another. And I think some of it was connecting with people and staff who told them like, you're so much more right. than this disease and this condition. So spent a lot of time down in the women's health, just kind of hanging out in their unit, even though it wasn't where I was assigned. I just enjoyed being <laughs> down there. And then came home after five months in Madagascar and just had that, you've talked about it on the podcast before, like reverse culture shock and yeah. grief, you know, that this chapter had ended. I ended up going out with Mercy Ships a couple more times to Cameroon and Benin. And, but at the time, felt really like I needed to find something in the U.S. that was going to help me just kind of continue to work through that need to be a part of something bigger. And uh, met Brooke actually totally at random at a women's conference in early 2016. She said, have you heard about fish slot or table? And I was like, yeah, I have. And got to talking and a beautiful friendship was born. And yeah. So it started as a volunteer with Hope for Sisters and then joined the board in 2017. So I've been on the board for a little over six years. Amazing. I love that. Yeah. And, and Hethel, yeah. I'll say really quickly to find someone who had heard about fistula was always like finding a diamond in the rough because a lot of people just didn't know about it. So I was thrilled when she said yes. And I was like, oh my gosh. So, yeah. So on that note, um, if, if, any of you who are listening, if you're listening to this episode and this is your first episode that you're listening to on the Global Health Pursuit podcast, I just want to quickly ask you, can you just give us like a kind of like a brief rundown of what fistula is? How does it happen? So I'm a nurse and I'm actually also a professor of public health and wrote my big capstone paper on this. So I, I yes. love talking about fistula and you know <laughs> what it is and how it affects women and how we can prevent it. So Fistula is essentially a hole that forms between the soft tissues of a woman's body when we're talking about gynecologic fistula. And once that hole is there, it connects to the bladder and other internal organs and women can unfortunately leak urine and feces and or feces. It's continuous. It's out of their control. So it obviously shame that goes along with that. There's a lot of pain. It's obviously uncomfortable and just a really tragic condition. There are three different ways that a woman can get a fistula. One is iatrogenic. So essentially a medical error. A woman mm. goes in for a surgery, a cesarean delivery, something like that. And there's some kind of a slip and a hole is formed. The other way is obstetric, which is by far and away the most common. There's some studies that have said that anywhere from, depending on the area, 80 to 100% of fistulas are obstetric in nature. So basically the way that happens is the babies, the woman is in labor. And we'll get more into kind of the risk factors, but baby's head as the woman is in labor begins to press upon soft tissues, you know, that bone, bone, bone pressing right. on, you know, ligaments, cartilage, things like that. And when a woman is in obstructed labor, so the baby can't get out, that pressure cuts off blood supply to the tissues. Eventually the tissue dies and a hole will form. In obstetric fistula, the other extremely tragic piece of that is in anywhere from like 85 to 95% of the cases, the infant will die, which is awful. This woman is left with this horrible condition and also does not have her baby. 
So that is obstetric fistula. And the last type of fistula is traumatic fistula, which is particularly hard in that it occurs as a result usually of sexual assault. So we tend to see that more in countries where there's political unrest, armed conflict, because sadly, sexual assault is a weapon of war and it's women's bodies become hostage to the situation. So we see more of that in our partner country, DR Congo. There was a study a number of years ago that suggested that as many as 68% of cases of fistula in DR Congo were traumatic in nature, which is brutal. So those are the types of fistulas. Um, We will say that in countries that are more high income, like the U.S., these are essentially obsolete. We have the technology to relieve obstructed labor. You don't see as much traumatic fistula here iatrogenic too. There's just a lot more like training and tech. So this is a condition of poverty. This is something that happens in low-income countries. They say that anywhere from a million plus women are out there living with fistula right now. The real trick here is that anywhere from 50 to 100,000 new cases occur every year, but there's right now only surgical capacity to fix about 20,000 a year. So there's a backlog that just keeps growing and growing and growing. You had mentioned to me the first time that we had a conversation, it was like, it was like the number of fistula that will occur will is always going to surpass the number of surgeries. Correct. Yeah. So that 20,000, you know, we can do 20,000 surgeries in a year with current surgical capacity in the countries where fistula is most prevalent, but there's 50 to 100,000 new cases happening. So until we ramp up medical infrastructure, and start really working on prevention, there's always going to be more fistula than fistula repairs. Right. And just to also note that not every repair is successful. You know, in our own country, not every surgery is guaranteed. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes people Mm -hmm. think, oh, I'll fund a surgery. It's a done deal. Mm -hmm. It's not always a done deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what are the complications that can happen through that? I'll start. And then you can add, Kara. The ones that I've learned most about, I mean, it... uh, it's so interesting. The surgeons we work with, one is Dr. Foster in Angola. He says, you know, every surgery is difficult because every surgery is unique. So let's say someone's had a fistula for years, like you mentioned, right? right? Many, many years. There can be scar tissue that develops around the hole. So it can make it hard to gather that tissue together. They often have to patch mm-hmm. that tissue. And I remember Dr. Foster said that if you stitch it too tightly, it can tear. Right. If you don't mm-hmm. stitch it tightly enough, it will leak. Um, So I'll let Kara chime in as well. That's exactly what I would have said. I think a lot of the success or lack of success is surrounding the nature of the fistula itself and sometimes just the surgeons. Mm -hmm. You know, if it's a newer surgeon, Mm -hmm. they may not have the experience of someone like Dr. Foster who's been doing this for years and they may take on a more complex fistula than they're really prepared to handle. And then there's scar tissue from that procedure that the next surgeon who comes in to look at it is already kind of working with something that's sort of a little more tricky than it might've been. Right. Right. And I think, um, especially that the hospital in Angola, Central Evangelical Medical Center, where Dr. Foster is, they are also a hospital that receives women maybe after a prior surgery has been attempted. Mm -hmm. And so they say that the more times you try, it's less likely to be effective. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do want to, so I'm, I'm the constant, like find hope in the, in the situation. I did want to share though, that, If it's caught early with fresh fistula, there have been cases at the hospital in Calakembe, Angola, where they have just catheterized the person. Mm -hmm. They just put a catheter in. They don't do surgery. And because the the acidic urine is not 
affecting the area anymore, it can heal. On its own. On -hmm. its own. Wow. So timing is really important as well. Wow. So I want everyone on this podcast, once you finish listening to this one, I want you to go and listen to the episode that I feature, Fischla Foundation, where we dive even further into Fischla, the surgeries, all of that um, really good stuff. For this episode, I really, you know, this is the thing with nonprofits. I think like a lot of times you want to have like a quantity of like surgeries or quantity of, you know, how many people are sponsored and all of this stuff. And so that, that term, those terminologies and all of that is like almost like sexier to talk about when you're trying to Mm -hmm. fund a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, hope for our sisters is, I feel like so much more than that when you're trying to prevent something that you'd have to fund like, like further down, further down the line. So Mm -hmm. could you speak about the, the model of hope for our sisters and kind of, you know, walk us through the first programs that you started? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, You know, that's, and it's a great question because we started off funding surgeries and it was so fun. Like I would go somewhere and they'd say, how many surgeries? Right. Right. Say 52. And so when we did, we troubled, we struggled with that. And I actually had a mentor who told me to just run from prevention. He goes, don't even go near it. And I think maybe, maybe in earlier years, it was harder to sell and harder to quantify but I'm so grateful that we pursued it because the people who invest in our work really like the idea of investing in the, you know, a root cause effort. Like, let's find right. out, let's go upstream, right? Let's go upstream and do this. And so our model, um, it's a three-pronged approach or like three in a cycle. So um, the majority of our funding goes towards prevention and prevention looks like education, so what is fistula? What causes it? How you prevent it? Timely and quality cesarean birth. We've talked about that. Timely because the baby, as Kara mentioned, the baby will die if the surgery is not early enough and also right. timely. So the woman doesn't develop the holes, but quality as well. There have been countries where they've, there's been an uptick in the availability of cesareans, but honestly, they're not performed well. And organs are getting stitched together. And so again, it just needs to be high quality Um, and also informed decision-making that that would fall under prevention. Empowerment Mm -hmm. is the second tranche that we fund. And that would be life skills, literacy programs, microfinance, solidarity groups, and ambassadoras, which we'll talk a little bit more about. And then treatment. So treatment is obviously fistula repair surgery. And as I mentioned, the surgery is not always successful. And many women are left with what is called stress incontinence, Mm. which they will have to manage the rest of their lives. So again, obviously prevention is just ideal, but we will always fund some treatment because we believe that those women need to come in Mm -hmm. from the margins. I wanted to talk about our partners and then I'll talk about one of the first programs. So I've mentioned some of our countries. So first and foremost, our, our biggest partners are the women and the girls there. We call them our sisters that was a a real big step for us to see them as partners. When we first started, we're like, oh, we're serving them. Mm. And then we're like, no, 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 wait a minute. These women and girls are amazing. They have their own voice. It's just being drowned out, right? Or maybe just not heard. And so, you know, they have capability. They have contributions to make. And so we see them as our first and foremost partners. 
And then we have both medical and outreach teams. So people who are actually performing medical procedures, but then people who are just getting the word out. We are, as Kara says, we are partner-led. So our partners are the experts. So we're not coming in with programs and saying, oh, you need this and that, but like, what do you need? And so we fund the beautiful work that they're doing. And so then our three partner countries, I'll start with DR Congo, because Kara mentioned. So we are in DR Congo specifically because of the traumatic fistula. We do not want to leave those sisters out of the mix. And we are partnering with World Relief and the Wellness Clinic through, it's actually through Jericho Road Community Health Center in Buffalo, New York. There we fund all three cycles of all three areas of our focus. We, we fund prevention, empowerment, and treatment there. We are also in Angola. So we have three partners there as well. We're at CEML, which I mentioned, that's with Dr. Steve Foster. We're with Calakembe Mission Hospital with Dr. Priscilla Cummings. And then we're in the Huambo area, a little more rural, um, with Petra Jobsa. She's a, a nurse. And in the country, we also fund all three types of care um, at this time. And then we're also in Nepal. And people are always like, why Nepal? You know, Angola, DR Congo. We're in Nepal because Dr. Shirley Haywood, Haywood was the first person we found who was doing fistula prevention work. And so we jumped in to fund their work. That's with the International Nepal Fellowship. And we fund mostly prevention, but some empowerment there. And then that's a great segue. One of our first programs, this was, we found it in 2012. And, you know, we were, we were itching to get prevention in all our locations, but we're not going to force that on any of our partners. Right. And so it was 20, 2015. I'm talking with Audrey. Audrey Henderson is a missionary nurse in Lubongo at CEML. I said, what do you need? And she said, we need prevention. And she goes, we have a person. We have Petra from Holland and Petra's funded. We need a program. And I get goosebumps, but I, I said, well, oh my gosh, there's a program that's working in Western Nepal. Let me see if Dr. Haywood will share it. And Dr. Haywood was thrilled to share it, sent the, all the curriculum over. And then we paid to have it contextualized or sometimes I'll say Angolicized. And I love that story because number one, it reminds us that it's the medical teams and the outreach workers who are the experts. But I also love that a program from one country can work at a program in another country, Mm. different cultures, because we're all in the same battle here. And it was just so beautiful that they didn't have to recreate the work. They just made it work for Angola. And it's been, the prevention program has just been growing exponentially ever since. So very grateful for that. That is amazing. So can either of you kind of talk about, you know, bringing in these women in the very beginning and kind of like educating them and seeing like, do you like the change in their perspectives around fistula and kind of like having their eyes opened being like, oh, wow, like I don't have to live like this for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the stories I was thinking of is one of the, one of the women you um, shared a story about, gosh, and I'm blanking on her name, but um, the women do, they do show up, gosh, they're in despair. They have been pushed out of their homes. They've been pushed out of their communities. And I guess, I guess I'll do it this way. And then maybe Kara can think of more specific story, but I'll paint a picture for you. When we first went in 2013, I met my first fistula patients, right? I had just been reading books. And when you read books, they talk about how awful it is. And then I went there and I met these women. And, you know, fistula is one of the worst birthing injuries in the world. Mm -hmm. But the women 
we discovered as we sat with them, even though they are in despair, there is a, there's a strength there. There's a hope there. And so when we came to CEML, we went to the patient village. It's where all patients of any, any kind wait at the patient village. And when we came there, we met women with fistula and Celia would laugh with me, but she was the only one. And they were sitting there sometimes for years, just because surgeries aren't, aren't always successful. They might have infections and, and they were doing nothing, Hethel. And, and I don't disparage the hospital at all. The, our partner hospitals treat these women like priceless gems. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, I think they benefited from us seeing it brand new. Mm-hmm. And, and my heart just split. And I was like, I, I knew that like we couldn't make them be productive, but I just, I knew they weren't meant to just sit. And so I, we talked about that before I left and we really, you know, brainstormed and we, and I, I remember the, the first attempts were tough because when the hospital staff would, would try to teach them something, the women would say, I'm unable. And so my prayer for two years was, you know, Lord, help them see that they're able. That, that was it. That was it. So we went two years later in 2015 and I met Salome and Salome was making a basket. Let me see if I can show you this basket right here. So totally unfinished. Love it. So I see her making this basket and I'm like, is that a woman with fistula? They're like, yes. I'm like, oh my stars. I am so excited because she's learning something. And so through translators, I said, I said, we told her, I said, if you finish this basket, by the time I get back at the end of the week, I will buy it. And she didn't finish it, but I bought it anyway. And I think <laughs> all the, all the women there were probably like, what is this crazy American woman doing? She's buying like this unfinished basket, but I bought a basket and some nurses bought a basket and the aftercare program was just, was born. And, and Kara can go into more detail on that later in the call, but I will tell you, I just went in March and sorry. Um, 10 years after my first visit, we show up at the patient village gate and I had, I had brought two women with me. I brought Andrea and I brought Emma and they'd never been before. And I just expected kind of the, hmm, more downbeat, more, more, more quiet, um, and even just suffering mode that I'd seen before. And oh my gosh, all the women with fistula met us at the gate singing. Oh. And they sang and danced us all the way to the back. And I just, to see that in 10 years and to see, and then they danced for us. You're making it, me cry, it, man. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> this trip was, this trip was just, it was a trip of Thanksgiving. And it was, and I, I remember I sat there watching these girls who are leaking, who've lost children, who've lost husbands. And they are finding joy. And I just, I remember I told God, I said, I will make a fool of myself for these women if I need to, because they deserve every, every, every voice we can elevate, every penny we can send, every bit of prevention we can fund. They deserve it all because they're just that absolutely amazing. So that's my sharing. I'll hand it to you. I literally am like, I think like something that, you know, maybe you talked about it when you talked to the Fistula Foundation too, but I think it's so important to remember that because of this condition, these women are so ostracized. Right. Their husbands abandon them. Their families will not let them in the house because, you know, what's happening is it's dirty. And, and I think people don't understand it. 
Sometimes it's regarded as a curse. These are women who will openly say, I have considered ending my life. I would rather be dead than live the way that I'm living. Because we're talking about countries where community is everything. These aren't people who are living in a place where you're designed to live on your own. You know, and these are also women who are not living in a society where it's typical to not be a mother. And so when that's taken from them, it's, you know, they feel like they've lost everything. And when they find one another and when they find a hospital staff that's willing to care for them and love them, it's, I think, you know, it really changes the game. (sighs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Yeah. yeah, I didn't expect to cry on the call, but (laughs) I did. Um, that's okay. That's okay. Um, That's okay. So, you know, after educating these women and showing them that there is hope, there is hope for the future. I'm going to, I'm going to skip over the treatment part. Um, because I think that's a little bit more self-explanatory, but in terms Mm -hmm. of like empowering them to kind of re-enter society after however many years or months they've been like feeling like a pariah or ostracized, you know, what are you doing? Like, what are some programs that are being implemented to kind of empower these women to re-enter society? Yeah. Right. Empowerment or a program that we call aftercare is also very important um, because like you said, these women are now repaired. But not all of them feel comfortable going home. Not mm-hmm. all of them feel like they have a home to return to. Right. So we, one, you know, they need to be cared for psychologically. And two, they need to be able to stand on their own two feet again. So it it started in Angola. Um, and we do have a, an important piece of it in Nepal as well. But um, essentially, we started an after, well, our partners outlined for us and we began to fund an aftercare program that focuses on endowing these women with marketable skills. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's something like helping them with basic literacy and numeracy, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how to add, how to subtract so that they could maybe start a small business. Um, And then there's other skills that are taught as well. Sometimes it's agricultural in nature. They talk to them about um, farming practices. Other times it's creating a marketable good. So we've seen women make hats, bags, caskets, jewelry, beautiful jewelry, all kinds of things that they can then go and sell in the marketplaces. So this is important in that um, it teaches the women, one, it gives them confidence, and two, it gives them something that they can sell to support themselves. In that program also, we now have a trained trauma counselor, mental health counselor. Yeah. So the women that are in there can also receive mental health counseling to process everything that they've been through, you know, from getting the fistula to what it's now like to be on the potentially and hopefully on the other side of it. But as we've said, some of these women are not repaired and they'll be left with stress incontinence or still a fistula. So it's also important to address that and talk to them about what that's going to look like going forward in their lives. Some of these women have multiple, multiple surgeries. There is one woman actually who teaches in the aftercare program. Mm -hmm. She teaches sewing and she actually is a fistula survivor, um, which is a really beautiful way that she can Mm -hmm. connect with these women. You know, one is their teacher and someone who's on the other side, but she also just understands, you know, everything that they're going through and her surgeries. She's had, maybe Brooke can remember the exact number. She's had multiple surgeries. She has a very complex fistula. So, and then in Nepal, um, it's not as much of a formal program as it is in Angola, but 
Dr. Haywood will reach out to us on occasion and tell us that there is a particular woman with particular needs that they want to help in this way. So for example, there was a woman a number of years ago who was much older. I want to say she was in her 50s or 60s and had had her fistula for decades. I'm like 15, 20, 25 years, I think. And they had set her and her sister up with some goats. So they were able to, because of the area where they lived was very rocky. It was really good for goats, interestingly. So they now have goats that one, they can sell the milk and two, they can breed the goats um, to sell goats now to make a living. So they've also had women who they've set up with things like a cart um, so that they can start Mm -hmm. like a fruit business and things like that. So just making sure that these women aren't just, you know, hey, you're paired. Here's your discharge plan. Like hit <laughs> yeah. the street, you know, see you in a year. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, really yeah. setting them up for success. And I think one of my other favorite things where Brooke talks about our SGBV program is a lot of the pieces of aftercare also feed back into prevention because fistula is a condition of poverty, right? And so these women who go on to be back in community with nieces, with younger women, hopefully with daughters. Um, When you're able to help a woman with literacy, when you're able to help a woman understand the importance of access to healthcare information, when you're able to explain to her the importance of, you know, prenatal care is available, you should be trying to get it, things like that, that then in turn helps Fistula. These women who stay in this program and who receive even more education in turn, go back to their communities better for it and, you know, helping younger girls behind them with prevention. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an exponential effect, you know, in terms of like, they're able to get educated, they go home, they can educate other women and girls, Mm -hmm. you know, around them. Wow. Brooke, were you going to add something? Yeah, just something specific to DR Congo. We fund there a program. It's called SGBV Groups or Sexual Based Gender Violence Groups. Um, it's through World Relief. Um, but those are, those are particularly powerfully supportive groups for these women. So again, most of the women there have traumatic fistula. And so when I went there in 2017, I met my first traumatic fistula patients. And first of all, they absolutely blew me away. We were sitting in a church and um, different people were talking. And I, I asked one of them to share her story and they all shared. And these were really hard stories to share, start hard stories to hear. But the courage they showed in that, um, I was so impressed by. And what I love about these groups is they're they're self-sustaining. So, you know, the church and the hospitals are involved to some extent, but every woman said, well, I was brought here by this woman and by this woman. So they find each other. They find these women in complete despair. They bring them into the group. And as Kara said, when you find others who are going through or have gone through similar situation, you can find hope there. They elect leaders, you know, to lead these groups. And what I love too, is these groups, when the women are hopeful enough and healthy enough, they actually go into the schools to mm-hmm. talk to the children about ending gender violence. They're, they are working, like Harris said, it's a little more formal, but they're working to create a more beautiful tomorrow by working through the ashes of, of what they experienced and they're coming out the other side. So again, I just, I love this group because these groups, because they they find each other and they nurture each other and they find strength in each other. Very powerful. I think that's like the beautiful 
thing of like the community way of life in these countries as I mean like my family's from India and like whenever we go back to India to visit any distant relatives or whatever it's like the door is open whoever Mm -hmm. wants to come in (laughs) come right in let's have some tea you know Um, and it's it's so different it's so different here Um, yeah so thank you so much Karen Brooke for coming onto the podcast I do want to ask you you know what is your vision? Like, do you have any specific things in the pipeline in the coming years? Yeah. I mean, our vision, our, our, our vision has always been bold. I'll start big and then I'll go more specific, but um, you know, we, we do envision a world where women are valued, where they are able to contribute to their communities and be change agents. That's how we see, we think every woman has the capacity for that. And we also believe we, we see a world where, these women and girls, our sisters, don't have to look at, at the potential of fistula, right? Why why does it have to be on their path? Why can't we boot it, you know, and like get rid of it from their path so it's not even a possibility? So I think near term, you know, one thing we're really working on with our partners right now is to really try to help them be as self-sustaining as possible because, you know, you know, uh, the generous fundraising, it can stop or it can change, it can shift. And so by having multi-partners who fund them, by having programs that fund themselves, the aftercare program right now, with the money made by selling the items they sew, part of the money goes to the women and part of the money buys more material. So that piece is already self-sustaining, which is really important. So we're trying to kind of have that, that lens when we make decisions with our partners. I will also say that about 90% of all of our medical and our medical outreach teams right now are local. So they're Angolan, they're Congolese, they're Nepali, which is nothing we created on our own, but it's something we've been so excited to celebrate as it's become more and more local. Our goal is to help these teams reach 75,000 people by 2025. So that would be women, men, you have to educate the men. That's very important. So women, men, children, tribal leaders, health workers, NGO representatives, um, they've reached out to, I believe we're at 52,000 so far. So we're trying to hit 75,000. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple more things. We're looking at, you know, how we shared the prevention from Nepal to Angola. Well, Nepal also has this really amazing program and they are these women are called female community health volunteers. They are basically experts in their community. They know every woman who's pregnant and where she is in the stage. And it has been an incredible prevention program for them to to identify issues early. So we've actually been in talks with our teams in Angola to say, you know, could something like that work, Mm -hmm. work in Angola? So trying to replicate programs where we can and then connect with people outside of Hope for Our Sisters. We got I, I, a woman in Texas found us, which was great. And she wants to start fundraising for us. A Catholic priest in Dublin, Ireland found us. Wow. And he's actually, you should talk to him. He is, yeah, he's should. focused <laughs> on fistula prevention. Yeah. Fistula prevention specifically at the UN level. Wow. So he's like talking UN policy. So I, I'm just foreseeing other people attacking it from different levels and angles. If we can all come together. Mm-hmm. We could be so much more powerful as we try to rid, let's just rid the planet of fistula. That would just be a lovely thing. So 
Yeah. I mean, the UN goal is to eradicate fistula by 2030. And I think Brooke, you know, has touched on this and said it. We feel like in the last few years, there's been a real momentum and attention to this cause. Yeah, that's probably one of the reasons why I actually found out about it just in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. People are talking about it. And then just last question, how can people support your mission and how can people get involved and get in contact with you? Great question. We, so we have our website, hopeforoursisters.org. We have, we're on Facebook at Hope for Our Sisters Inc. And I post on Instagram some. The website's probably the best hub to use. And that may be mm-hmm. kind of old fashioned with what people do today, but I am 52. So um, <laughs> that's what we have there. But really, I think the first thing I would say is share this podcast. If, if this has, has moved your heart, Share this with someone because I bet you they probably don't know about fistula and you, you never know what person is going to be moved to do something on behalf of our sisters. Mm -hmm. So share it, follow us. We have people who volunteer and do our tax returns. They do website updates for us. So they serve us with their skills. They give us marketing advice. You can join our team anywhere in the world, wherever you live, you can join our team and help with events help reach out to investors. The fourth, like kind of like we had tiers, like another tier in a little bit more of a commitment might be, you know, host an event for us. Mm-hmm. Again, wherever you are, it can be a wine and cheese night. It can be a casual tea or a book club. You can run for us. We have technology where you can set up your own page and fundraise while you run, which I think is beautiful. And then honestly, what we're sending over are funds. So those of you who can share your financial resources with us, with our sisters. We take care to send the most that we can over. We keep 9% for administrative purposes and the rest go to our, our sisters. And then we also have a Partners in Hope program where people, if you want to give, you can give on a regular basis. So that is something else people can do to, to help. Yeah. What about you, Kara? Any ideas? Yeah, I think I would add, like Brooke said, you know, sometimes I think websites sound old fashioned, but our website has so much information. Mm -hmm. It has stories about individual women that we've partnered with over the years and, you know, their stories of overcoming fistula, how they came to have fistula. And it talks about, I feel like we have a number of prevention programs and, you know, to talk about them all would have taken us hours because we obviously love talking about this, but you know, if, if you're someone who believes in the power of ultrasound, we have an ultrasound empowerment mm-hmm. program. We're funding the education of surgeons to go mm-hmm. in and be available not only to perform safe cesarean sections in a quality and timely manner, but also to repair fistulas. We have medical partners that are in government offices talking to the governments about why this is important um, for a million reasons for their communities and societies. So I think it's really easy to get excited about prevention when you're on our website and you read about all the different things that we're doing and message us. If you think Brooke and I aren't thrilled to hop on a phone call with you (laughs) for 15 or 20 minutes, anyone, you know, please go to the website, shoot us an email, DM us on Facebook. We are happy to set up a chat and answer questions about this more if you have some after looking at our website. Yeah, I love this. All the links will be in the show notes. So go check that out and get in contact with them. If they, if this episode made you cry, get in contact (laughs) with them. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Thank you so much guys for 
coming on and talking about this really such an important topic. I just hope that people are touched and get involved and share you guys' story. Thank you again. Well, thank Thank you so so much much. for, yeah. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to share and thank you for the beautiful work you're doing. I've been listening to your podcasts. So thank you for bringing light to issues that people don't know about. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There, you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you love this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.